The Competitive Contractor Podcast is brought to you by Shivendra & Co. Visit www.shivendra.com to find out how you can work with us to grow your business, be more profitable, and become a competitive contractor. Hi everyone, welcome to the Competitive Contractor Podcast, a podcast specially for contractors helping build Australia's infrastructure. Today, I'm delighted to have Kate Burrows, Founder and Managing Director of Tender Training College with us. Welcome, Kate, and thanks for agreeing to provide us an introduction to successful tenders. Hi, Shivendra. Thank you for having me. And welcome to the contractors who are listening and who are looking to start tendering or to improve their current performance. We all know tendering can be time-consuming, costly and challenging, and it drags you away from the day-to-day operations of the business. The objectives of this podcast are to share some skills, knowledge and tips with you to make the tendering process more efficient and effective, and of course, more successful. Great to have you here, Kate. Kate, you have helped clients win more than 25 billion in government tenders across Australia and New Zealand. Your clients include tier one construction companies such as CPB Contractors and Lendlease. You have worked on the Sydney Gateway Road Project, Sydney Light Rail, Melbourne Metro Tunnel and Western Sydney Airport, to name a few. Before we delve further on our topic, tell us about how the Tender Training College came about. I have worked as a tender consultant for more than 15 years across Australia and New Zealand. I've helped companies put together tenders from the very large contracts that you have mentioned to the smallest of bids for sole traders. It was as a result of this experience that I realised a couple of things. One, people often found themselves thrown into a tender with little or no experience or training. And two, these professionals, through no fault of their own, were making the same mistakes time and time again in preparing their submissions. This meant that some professionals lost their jobs as a result of their poor tendering performance, and some businesses put their viability at risk for the same reason. So with the help of education and training experts, I applied the proven and structured approach I used to prepare tenders to develop a high range of quality training programs and hence the Tender Training College was born. And I'm proud to say we were the first college to offer online tender training courses in Australia. And we've since empowered hundreds of professionals to improve their bidding participation and outcomes. That's amazing. So it's TTC is basically born out of practical experience. And as a background to this podcast, this topic was requested by businesses that recently joined the Infrastructure Construction Contractors Network a specialised support group established to help contractors ride the current turbulent economic climate. To start off our conversation, Kate, how important is it for businesses to assess standards they will pursue and which ones they won't? It definitely is uncertain times, Shivendra, and uncharted territory for many businesses. However, the good news on the construction front is that the governments are pushing ahead with infrastructure projects, both state and federally, to help the economic recovery. So it's expected to be a busy time on the tendering front. But it is important now more than ever that businesses do the analysis when receiving a tender to determine whether or not they should actually bid for the work. Tendering is a great opportunity to grow your business, but the risks are also significant. The bidding process takes up time, money and resources. Losing a tender can be costly to your organisation's reputation and viability. And winning a tender and failing to deliver it can also be very damaging. To mitigate these risks, I suggest implementing what we call a go-no-go process 
early in the bid period to analyse your likelihood of success. This should mention, measure your chances of winning at the tender evaluation stage, being able to deliver the contract over the term to the client's expectations. But it's surprising to venture how many companies skip this step. Mm -hmm. In conducting a go-no-go no go review, develop a set of criteria that suits your company's risk profile. This could include the following considerations. Do you have the resources to deliver the contract? Can you manage the risks associated with delivering the contract? What is your relationship with the client and how is this likely to impact the evaluation? Do you have sufficient evidence of past performance to show how you can deliver the same results for the client in this particular contract? From here, you can make an informed decision whether it is worth your time and money to proceed with the bid. That is, you have a go or a no-go outcome. That's very useful insights. I think it's great to do that before you spend too much effort in preparing a tender. That's really helpful. Now, Kate, from your experience, what should tender writers and business owners keep in mind when preparing a tender response? Shivendra, at the top of the list is to keep the client front of mind so you can prepare a client-focused response. A lot of the key elements I will share with you today relate back to this point. When I talk about the client here, I'm talking about the entity that has issued the tender and will determine the preferred bidder. For our listeners, the client in this instance is most like likely to be larger construction companies. But it is helpful to keep in mind that their clients are normally a state or federal government agency. But regardless of who the client is, each tender is unique and the client's objectives will be different every time. These objectives clearly state what the client hopes to achieve through the successful delivery of the contract. In other words, what does the end result look like from the client's perspective once the contract is being delivered to their expectations? What does good look like for them? If you want a top score that wins a bid, you must identify and understand the client's objectives and then describe in your response how you will help meet those objectives over the contract period. Too often, companies submit generic responses that could have been written for any client or any project. They use content from their websites or a previous tender or just submit their capability brochures without taking the time to specifically address the client and their goals. You can normally find the client objectives communicated in the tender document. They can be called contract, project or tender objectives. Often large construction companies that issue tenders for subcontractors will replicate the government's objectives in their own documents. If the client objectives are not in the document, review their website, have a look at their annual report and other strategic documents. Really try to understand what are their key drivers. Ask yourself, what is at stake for the client? Thanks, Kate. So keeping the client front of mind while writing a tender is probably the most important thing for anyone. Now, I'm guessing a common objective for nearly every client would be to manage the risk associated with these contracts. Am I right? Yes, absolutely, Shivendra. All clients, whether they are government or private sector, need to carefully manage the risks associated with the tender and the end contract. Think about some of the recent construction projects that have attracted not so favourable media interest. Because of the project hasn't been delivered on time or the budget has blown out, or there's been disputes or community protests. All clients want to help protect their reputations as well as their future success and viability. Always show in your approach that you understand the risks and how you can help manage them and alleviate the client concerns. 
That's fantastic. I think it covers everything now we need to keep in mind when uh, writing up a tender. Now, a tender is now written and it's submitted. For many of our contractors, the assessment of a tender happens behind closed doors, often with little or no feedback at all. I know you've been part of many tender assessment panels. So how is a tender assessed? Well, the tender evaluation process is still one of life's great mysteries because as you said, Shavendra, there is often a lot of cloak and dagger involved, but this is mostly due to the strict probity requirements that govern the tender process. These are designed not to advantage or disadvantage any one competitor, but it can be highly frustrating for contractors when they are given limited or no feedback after they've spent considerable time preparing a proposal. What we do know is that most clients take a similar approach to evaluating tenders. When calling for a tender, a client must make a highly informed decision about the successful bidding party. And to do so, they ask numerous questions and request, request a lot of information from the bidding parties about how they're going to actually deliver the project or the goods or services and the price for doing so. So once they receive the tenders, the completed tender responses, a client will assess the price and the non-price elements separately, and then they'll award the scores for each and add them together to determine a winning bidder. There will be a weighting for the price and the non-price elements. For example, price might be worth 60% of the total overall assessment and the non-cost elements 40%, say. The weighting will depend on how important the price of the tender is to the client. Similarly, the client will use a set of evaluation criteria to assess each non-price question in the response. And these criteria will be weighted in accordance with their importance. For example, the client might put a higher weighting on the program question than on the safety question because their ultimate objective is to have the job delivered on time. Hence, the response to the program question might be worth 40 out of 100, while the safety section or question might be worth 30 out of 100. In construction tenders, you can expect to see evaluation criteria and questions that relate to your experience and capability, financial stability, your methodology, safety and environmental management, for example. The evaluation criteria are used to assess the competence of each organisation to deliver the contract through your response to the questions. So what is really important is that you read the evaluation criteria and you understand which of those criteria applies to each of the questions. And then when you're going to write your response, you address these evaluation criteria in your answer. If your response does not address the evaluation criteria, then you will not score top marks. And this is one of the biggest mistakes authors make. Yeah, thanks for that. The words value for money comes up in a lot of conversations. And we know that the governments are always wanting value for money. How is this assessed in the evaluation process? Sure, a common element of all government tenders is the overarching requirement to evaluate them on which one achieves the best value for money. So government clients will use the evaluation criteria and the price of the tender to determine which party offers the best value. You could say it's the cost and the benefits of each proposal in accordance with the desired outcomes. So it is important again from the beginning to understand what the client objectives are for the contract. Sometimes they want the lowest price, 
Other times they're willing to spend more if they get more for their money. In determining best value for money, they consider the best possible outcome for every dollar spent. They weigh up the cost, the benefits and the inherent risks in the offer rather than simply selecting the value, the lowest price. Demonstrating value for money is not just about crunching numbers, although having the most competitive price is always advantageous. It's about showing how well you understand the unique needs of the client and what is of value to them and how you will deliver this value for them over the term of the contract. Right. It's value for money, how we deliver it. But I think the essence of everything you've shared in the podcast so far comes back to keeping the client front of mind. It's good to know now what happens behind the scenes. But I'm curious though, on some common reasons, tender submissions get rejected in the early review cycles. Are you able to shed some light on that? Sure. Going through the expense and effort to submit a tender only to be told it didn't even pass the compliance test. Heartbreaking, obviously. Bidders either fail to abide by the tender guidelines, they don't include the mandatory information that, well, is actually mandatory, or they don't address the tender requirements. You really need to ensure compliance with all these elements. Let's have a look at them individually. So firstly, the client will set guidelines or rules in its tender document as to how the bidding party should manage the tender process and submit their response. This ensures a tender is run with integrity, transparency and fairness, and that there's no disadvantage or advantage to one particular bidder. These rules or guidelines can include everything from how you communicate with the client, the pricing instructions, and the format and date and time for submitting your response. Failure to comply with these guidelines can reel you out of the race. Secondly, there is mandatory information. This is the information in the tender that is compulsory, included or risk being ruled out of the tender process. So the type of information we're talking about is including uh, all your, your details on the tender form, insurance certificate, financial reports. Often there is a section called mandatory information in the tender documents, and you must submit what is, in, is being asked for in this section Otherwise, your tender will not progress any further. The third element we need to comply with is to show the client how we will meet the tender requirements in our answers. These requirements are found in the contract or scope of work documents that are released with the tender. They outline exactly what you need to deliver if you are the successful bidder. That is the standard specifications, obligations and responsibilities of you as the supplier. For example, if you were tendering to build a house, the scope of works would indicate the number of walls, whether it needs to be a single or double story, number of rooms, brick or timber finish, etc., etc. The client reads and evaluates your tender response on the basis of how effectively you'll meet the requirements over the term of the contract. So even if your question doesn't ask you to address the requirements, you should still, one, identify what requirements are relevant to your question and two, do your best to incorporate these in your response to show you understand what needs to be delivered. Not addressing these requirements or having conflicting information in your answer may result in a heavily reduced score. Now, I assume in many cases there are multiple submissions and it must be extremely difficult for the panel to make a decision. 
what separates a successful response from unsuccessful ones when it comes to really tight situations? Well, Shivendra, that's a good question. You must remember that tenders are a sales and marketing document. You have to expect the competition to be fierce and you need to put your best foot forward at every step. In our discussion thus far, we've covered off the following elements which are vital to winning a tender response. Number one, addressing the evaluation criteria. Number two, providing a compliant response. And three, delivering value for money. The next element that contractors need to consider is in the writing of their response. You need to make sure you answer all of the questions completely and that you differentiate yourself from the other bidders to score top marks. Let's look at the first point about answering the questions completely. One of the most common mistakes I see bidders make is not answering the question in their entirety. They either miss responding to components of the question or they don't provide sufficient detail in their response. A lot of the time in tenders, particularly those in the construction industry, the questions can be lengthy and complex and often very confusing. And they can ask for you to show many different things in your response. So you really need to address all parts of the question to be eligible to score top marks. Also, many authors fail to provide a direct answer. They respond with vague or abstract statements and information. A direct answer can mean the difference between scoring minimum and maximum points. Starting off with a good introduction will force you to answer the question and give guidance to the evaluators as to where the response is going. You need to give them a bit of a roadmap for your response. Also, you have to answer the question thoroughly with sufficient detail so that there aren't any lingering questions hanging in the mind of evaluators. This also puts you in the best position to score top marks. That's good advice, Kate. You mentioned there was a second element that contractors needed to consider when writing the response. Yes, Shivendra. The second point to score maximum points is to ensure your response is competitive. It has to stand out as the best. You can expect the competition to be able to meet all of the client requirements as outlined in the tender, just like you can. Otherwise, what is the point of them bidding? You must gather irrefutable evidence to prove to the client that you can meet and exceed the tender requirements for the term of the contract. The best way to do this is to show evidence where you have done it before for other clients in similar contracts. This can be in the form of reference projects and case studies or facts and figures. Also, you should clearly identify areas of opportunity that differentiate your tender response and provide value to the client. These are the special features of your approach. That is the way you do business and all the initiatives you will employ to deliver the contract. One of the things that the larger construction companies rely on subcontractors for is to help them meet some of the priority group targets in delivering some of these large government contracts. For example, the number of apprentices, local businesses, women or Aboriginal people that are employed on the project. It is important to communicate these features of your proposal and what benefit these will give the client so they are really clear what value they will receive for their money. These features put you on a superior rather than equal footing to your competitors. Those are all very, very good points. Really a lot of, lot of things to take away from that. 
In our previous chats, you spoke about being clear and compelling in responses. Are you able to share some tips on how we do this? Yes, definitely, Shivendra. Again, it comes back to putting yourself in the client's shoes. Imagine being an evaluator and how tired you would be after reading hundreds of pages of responses. We want to make it easy for them to read and score your response. Let's look at a few tips here that can help. Number one, make sure your proposal has a clear structure. Before you start writing, set up a structure for your response so the content is presented in a format that clearly references the question. The best way to do that is to insert headings and subheadings that reflect each question and its component parts. Make sure the headings contain the same or similar wording to the question so it is clear what question or part of the question you are responding to. Just as a clear structure helps you as you write, it also helps the tender evaluators read and mark. You don't want them to have to search for information. Tip two is about formatting your response to break up the content to make it more interesting and easier to read. That means presenting your information in a variety of format to avoid large chunks of text. We all know how off-putting that can be. Use tables, bullet lists, pictures, graphics and headings to break down your information into digestible sections. And tip three, use succinct language. Remember the poor evaluators. Use simple, easy to understand language and get to the point using as few words as possible. The evaluators consist of a range of stakeholders, particularly on some of the large construction tenders. They may be representatives from the finance, safety or HR department. You have to assume that the reader has limited or no knowledge of your business and the subject matter. Avoid using lots of abbreviations or industry jargon. That makes it hard to read and it may not be understood by the person who is reading your response. And my final tip is to make sure you leave yourself enough time before you submit your proposal to do a quality check of your document. Make sure you do a proofread. Double check you have all of the mandatory information and attachments. And even if you're submitting electronically, print out the document and check it in hard copy, as this is often how the client will view it. Remember the finished product is a direct reflection of your business and you want it to look as professional as possible. That's fantastic, Kate, thank you. And finally, where can people get more information about the Tender Training College? And is there additional support available for those who would like to learn more about this? Of course, please visit our website, which is tendertrainingcollege.com.au to learn more about our Tender Training packages. We have online courses that target the specific needs of small and large business, as well as training options for teams. And we're very happy as part of this podcast to offer listeners a 20% discount on our online courses and tender reviews. We will provide the details of the discount code in the accompanying slides. But please feel free to contact me at kate at tendertrainingcollege.com.au for any other specific assistance we can provide. Thank you, Kate. That offer is very much welcome. I'm sure our contractors will benefit from that. Do you have a final message for our audience? Shivendra, I'm sure I speak on behalf of the listeners in thanking you for organising this podcast and providing tangible, valuable and support for businesses during these uncertain times through your competitive contractor initiative. 
I'm sure there are a lot of contractors out there who are benefiting from this. That's very nice of you, Kate. Thank you so much for your comments, as well as for joining us on this podcast. Your insights will help many of our contractors make even more significant contributions to Australia's infrastructure, grow their businesses, and be the competitive contractor. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Competitive Contractor Podcast. If you want to grow your business and be more profitable, contact us through www.shivendra.com. Our commitment is to impact you and your business positively and be the competitive contractor.